We are um, started this little journey last week in the discussion of believers' baptism, and we're in. We started this in Matthew 28. Um, I'm going to go back there for just a moment and look again at that passage. Uh, it's so straightforward and simple. This was Jesus setting the the apostles out really on the mission that was going to characterize the church for all generations to come. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. Now, as you know, last week was just part one, and it was mainly introduction And we needed to cut it a little short because some of the things I need to develop this morning, there's no way I could have done that last week unless we had stayed through till about 8 in the evening. So I wanted to get back and try and get this in in perspective. So let me give a little recap from where we were and then move on to where you actually are in your notes there. So we have this command to go and to make disciples based on Christ's own supreme authority. We read that in Matthew 28, verse 18. He said, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth, and I want you to make disciples of all the nations with two thoughts here. First, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That isn't a formula. It isn't use these specific words. It's go in the authority of the triune God. Now, we use those words, but we use those words to intimate the fact, to display the fact we're doing this with God's full authority. And then teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Now, you can't separate those two. And we talked about that last week in atomistic thinking, separating things that belong together. Um, to be a baptized disciple of Christ is one to be teaching and learning all the things that Christ has commanded. And then with that, in Matthew 28, we also saw the parallel in, Matthew, in Mark 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And so we noted there that it isn't lack of being baptized that condemns a person, but lack of believing. Matter of fact, the New Testament refers to hearing the gospel and obeying the gospel. It is the responsibility of every human being to believe the gospel and trust Christ for their salvation. He doesn't just leave it as a, as a one category of choices out there. It's why Paul on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17 can say God commands all men everywhere to repent. He doesn't just say, wouldn't this be a good idea? He loves us so much that he doesn't leave it in that category but moves beyond and calls it a command. So I'm going to ask all of you here today, have you obeyed the command to believe Jesus Christ for your salvation? Have you understood your sinfulness and that he has put himself forward, the Father's put him forward, as a propitiation, a satisfaction for your sins? And have you received that satisfaction for yourself? Have you said, I trust? That's the important part, and we're going to come back to that even more by the time we're done here. So, we've got these three things preaching the gospel so that people know why they should be baptized, what, what it is they, they are to believe, and then secondly, being baptized, and then thirdly, being taught. So preaching the gospel and then baptizing those believe, who believe and then teaching the baptized to observe what Christ has commanded. We talked about the gospel being pretty straightforward, but when it comes to this doctrine, this teaching of believer's baptism, water baptism, that what you have to do is collate information from a lot of different parts in the Bible. So we go to the New Testament and find those passages that teach about baptism, and then we go to the New Testament and look for examples of baptism, and then we even go to the Old Testament and look for the ways that baptism was foreshadowed back there, and then take all of that information and put it together so that we can arrive at what we ought to note here. And then we also saw that there was a a common misconception regarding baptism, that it somehow replaced circumcision as the initiatory right into the believing community. But Romans uh, 2 and several other places militate against that. 
What brings us into being part of the body of Christ is being born again, is being baptized by the Spirit into one body, as we're told in Corinthians. That's the initiatory rite, having our hearts changed, circumcision of the heart made without hands. And instead, we're using baptism, we're using this analogy to help understand baptism better, the picture of an engagement ring. And we discussed uh, where that comes from. Actually, there's two places in Scripture, especially in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul talks to the Corinthian church about how I betrothed you as a chaste bride to Christ. And then we see in Revelation later on, especially in chapter 19, where there is yet coming the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we are finally united to Him fully in marriage, and so we're in this sort of engaged state until then. And baptism takes on this characteristic of being very much like a, uh, an engagement ring. So we've been, we started to look at three things. We want to say, what does baptism symbolize? And then what does it demonstrate to us? What does it symbolize? What does it explain to us? What does it demonstrate? What does it show us? And then thirdly, what does it declare? What does it say by our participation in it? And that's where we wanted to get to today. We just started to unpack those. We unpacked the first one, that it symbolizes forgiveness. And we looked at that out of Ezekiel chapter 36, where, where Jesus quotes this, or at least alludes to this, to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, how it's necessary for us to be washed, to be cleansed from our sin, to be forgiven. You know what it is when you're forgiven by somebody you've offended, how there's finally kind of a, a washing away of all the stuff that's between you, getting rid of the defilement, and that forgiveness makes sure that the two of you can be in harmony together. Uh, let me just read that portion, Ezekiel 36:25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What an incredible promise. And that's the promise of what he says he'll do in salvation when we trust Christ. There will be that cleansing, that removal of defilement. You know that when in the Old Testament... The picture always was that when you were still defiled by your sin, you couldn't have entrance into God. As a matter of fact, you couldn't have even go to the ordinary worship of the saints. You had to wait until you had gone through the sacrificial process and been cleansed of your uncleanness. And this, he says, I'll do by faith. And so baptism symbolizes that forgiveness and that cleansing first. Secondly, it symbolizes acceptance we took that out of Matthew 3. It's in Jesus' own baptism that he hears that amazing declaration of the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And how that then passes over to us. You'll remember in 1 John 3, 2, we're, we're told to, to be reminded of the fact that, Beloved, now are you the sons of God. You've been brought into the family. You've been adopted. And it doesn't even yet appear what you will be. But you know that when He appears, you'll be like Him. The sonship has already begun, this being brought into His family. And that idea is repeated for us in a number of other places too, especially in Romans and in Galatians, where in Romans we're told that in salvation we were given the spirit of adoption so that when we pray, we're not praying to some distant deity, but we're crying out to our Father, Abba! And that it's that, that natural exclamation of the child. Sinclair Ferguson, in his wonderful little book on the Holy Spirit, not a relative except by, you know, all the Fergusons, we're all, we're all Scottish, you know, it's, it's Ferguson, and I suppose we're all connected somewhere, but he has a wonderful book on the Holy Spirit where he talks uh, about when you're a little child uh, and you fall down and scrape your knee, you just instinctively cry out, Mama or Daddy. And that is one of the key signals that you're truly born again. 
that when there is an issue, when all of a sudden there is a, a, a crushing pain or a need, you instinctively cry out, Abba, I know I need to get to my father. He's the one who will deal with me. That's, that's another thing that baptism symbolizes, that we're in that relationship, that we have that kind of acceptance. And then lastly, and we just began to touch on this, it symbolizes, water baptism does, death, burial, and resurrection. If you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn over to Romans chapter 6. I want to look at a portion here for just a few moments to kind of bring you to the practical side of this and why it's so important for us. Now, in, as we talked about briefly last week, classically in, in Christendom, there's been three ways of baptizing, typically. Um, and some people have mixed these metaphors together. I keep saying one of these days when we have a baptismal service, I'm going to do all three together. Because all three signify just wonderful things, but, but especially this last one. So, like from Ezekiel 36, where he says, I will sprinkle you and you will be clean. I'll sprinkle you with clean water. And there's this wonderful picture then that... It doesn't take a tidal wave, but just the very sprinkling of the blood of the Lamb is sufficient. It's a wonderful picture. But then there was also pouring, and some traditions do that. They'll take the child or the adult, and they will pour. And there's a wonderful way of showing, demonstrating there, that for the believer, there is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. It's a, it's a wonderful picture. Sometimes in the early church, as a matter of fact, you went into the waters of baptism with another person, and he would pray for you, and then you would immerse yourself Three times, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The mode isn't the key thing here, but it sure has its power in the way that it symbolizes. And this is why we immerse, why we hold to this as, as the normal way that the New Testament teaches it, that you go into baptism and you're immersed in order to signify death, my death with Christ, and when someone's dead, you bury them. And you go under the waters as a way of demonstrating, I died with him and was buried with him. And now when I come up, I walk in newness of life with him. It's tremendous symbolism. So maybe, I don't know, next crew, next group, when you say you want to be baptized, you might get all three. You might get in the tank with me. I might sprinkle you first, pour over your head, and then immerse you. I'm not sure yet. I might work on that. Just, just to mess a few people up, I'm sure it'll set somebody's hair on fire, and that's, that's really the fun part of it. But this symbolism of death, burial, and resurrection is exactly what's given to us here in Romans 6, and where it's brought out in a little more detail to help us understand the importance of it and the practical side of it. As a matter of fact, in this passage here, we're introduced to one of the best weapons that a Christian is ever given for dealing with temptation and indwelling sin, and it's through the symbolism of baptism. Let's go to the passage itself. What shall we say then? Well, I'll jump down. I won't, I'm going to read those first verses, and then we'll come back to this, okay? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? There was a discussion in this, this Roman church. Some people said, hey, if God's glorified by forgiving sin, then maybe we ought to just go ahead and sin more, and God gets even more glory by forgiving more sin. And Paul says, no, that's not quite the way the system works. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Then he posits a very interesting question, not one that most of us would ask. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, I don't know, is that your experience? Have you died to sin? This is where baptism is going to become very important to you in just a moment. In fact, you have. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the truth is that at the moment you believed and you were united to him by the Spirit, you've become a partaker of his death and you do not have to sin anymore. 
Now, I need to make this clear because all of us as Christians still sin, but we need to know we sin because we want to, not because we have to. Before we were saved, we did it because we had to. That's all we could do. But there is a freedom that has been given to us that we have not yet begun to scratch the surface of that's contained right here. Do I think, then, that you're going to leave here today or get baptized and leave here today and live a perfectly sinless life? I do not, nor does the Scripture expect that. What it does mean is that you're going, there's going to be a change in the thinking, in the way that you deal with your sin. So how can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Here's the, here's the rhetorical question. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Didn't baptism picture that? This, this going down like being buried? Didn't, didn't it grip you that way? We were buried, therefore, with him. By baptism into death for this purpose, in order that. Always look for these purpose statements in Scripture. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You've been buried with him in baptism for this purpose, so that you can walk in newness of life. So it's not just a a theoretical thing. It symbolizes this union with him, this amazing, transcendent, mystical, spiritual union with him where you share in that death and then you get to share in walking a new way. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, verse 5, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If we got the first part, we'll get the second. Well, this is an atomistic. It's together. We get the whole package because we're in Christ. And so we come back to verse 6 that I have up here. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Because we're in him, When he was crucified, we were crucified. That that means sin was paid for, and so we aren't accountable in the same way anymore. The old self was crucified with him, and again, note the purpose. In order that the body of sin, that remaining principle of sin, that's still there, because you know all the sin hasn't been removed, it still shakes and quakes and makes its presence known, It hasn't gone away. Those of you who say it has gone away, please talk to me afterward about your sinful lying. All right? So I can prove to you it hasn't gone away. That in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. This has happened so that the remaining principle of sin doesn't have permission to have dominion over us anymore. That's the idea. It's the purpose. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That's the whole package. Now, let's go back. Paul here notes how it is that baptism is a link to what it means to be joined to Christ. It it symbolizes this. Now, since by the Spirit we're made one with Him, we get that from 1 Corinthians 1, or 12, for in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one Spirit. If that's so, if that's the nature of our salvation, then we have the benefit of all that He did on our behalf as our representative, and what He did was die for sin, was buried, and was raised for our justification. So, how do I use this? What what use is that to me? It's this. When I'm tempted, I have this invaluable tool, this weapon at my disposal, to recall my baptism, and then to... Martin Lloyd-Jones has a wonderful way of putting it. He says, uh, the, the truth is, we don't talk to ourselves enough. 
Now, I know for some of us, if you talk to yourself anymore, they're going to put you in a jacket and carry you off. But the truth is, Christians need to talk to themselves all the time. Why? Because the world, the flesh, and the devil are talking to us all the time. And we need to deal with that. We need to talk to ourselves. And one of the things that we do is we recall to mind, wait a minute, I no longer have to obey sin like I used to. You've got to say that to yourself in times of temptation. And I know I don't have to. I was buried with him in baptism. I died with him. And I was raised up with him so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That was the purpose of it, to set me free. And we have to kind of take ourselves in hand and say, wait a minute, I don't have to live in my anger. I don't have to live in my lust. I don't have to live in my greed. I don't have to live in my fear. I don't have to live in all those things that consume my thoughts and my life. I have freedom in Christ, and indignantly I'm going to walk in that freedom. It's good to get indignant with your own sin, because it is lying to you that you have to stay there. That is a lie. And so he says, use baptism. You went into those waters. You did this because you believed the gospel. And now cling to that. I don't have to do this. I'm free in Christ. And live there. It's an extraordinary gift that he gives us, and it gets washed to the side. We just don't even think about it very much. So, say to yourself, say to sin inwardly. This is going to sound weird, isn't it? But it's what only a Christian can do. I don't have to yield anymore like I used to. I'm not governed by that. It may feel like I'm still governed by it. Sin may still be rising up trying to gain the ascendancy, but the truth is I don't have to. And as I continue walking in that, by faith, trusting in what the Spirit has done, I gain more and more freedom to walk free of those things. What an incredible weapon against the enemy who's always trying to deceive us that we can't overcome our sin but just have to live in perpetual misery and slavery. Those of you especially who have dealt for a long time with a besetting sin, one of those sins that's recurring, and you know very well what the cycle of that sin is like. You know how it starts in one place with a trigger, and then you can almost see it coming on the horizon. And if I continue down this path, and it's like I can't stop the the avalanche, and it's building up inside, it's building up inside, and then finally you yield to it, and then there is the crushing guilt, and then there's the shame, and there's all that goes with it. And you say to yourself, man, once that, that cycle starts, I can't stop it. That is a lie. You have been crucified with Christ. You absolutely can stop it by the power of the Holy Spirit because you're a Christian. If you're not a believer, no, you're right. You can't stop it. You're stuck. That's why we invite you to come to Christ for freedom. But if you're a believer, you can stop. There's this amazing thing. And one of the key things to that is going back and saying, wait a minute, I've been baptized. And you know what? When I got in that tank... And they put me under the water. That was a symbol of what happened to me when I believed and was joined to Christ by the Spirit. And His death is as much my death. And His resurrection to new life is as much my resurrection. And I can walk differently. Boy, it's powerful. But it's only powerful if we really take advantage of it. It's what's given to us here. It's why it's important for everyday life in the believer Because it enables us to to fight the single most prevalent, continuous battle we have. The pervasive lies of indwelling sin seeking to reestablish its rule over us. It's always trying. And that we're always fighting. And the fight is, no, I don't have to live here anymore. I don't have to do this. It's also a demonstration in three things. Baptism has symbolized three things, our cleansing or forgiveness and our acceptance with the Father and our joining together in Christ in death, burial, and resurrection, but it also is a demonstration of several things. And the first is that it's a demonstration of obedience to the Lord of life. 
I've come to be a believer, and I've read in his word that what he commissioned the church to do was to preach the gospel, and that those who believe were to be baptized. And so it demonstrates that I am willing to obey Christ who called the church to baptize believers and say, yeah, well, I'm going I'm to go along with that. Christ has instituted it. It's put there. And, and I want to demonstrate that I truly believe this and that is real for me and that's reality, that I'm going to follow him. I would ask for some who have said, well, you know, I, I've, I've been a believer, been a believer a long time. But you've never seen that Christ called the church to baptize believers and say, how about this? Is he really Lord? Will you follow him in this? Because this is a demonstration that you're going to obey him as Lord of your life. It's one of the things. And isn't it a simple thing he calls you to? Isn't it funny in our marriages? Isn't it the simple little things that get us upset at one another? She does this or doesn't do that, or he does this or doesn't do that. They aren't big on the scale of eternity. They really aren't. But we find those the sticking point. And wouldn't it be worthwhile questioning yourself, why maybe this sticking point? I don't really want to give all to him. After all, I'm going to look silly. I'm going to get up there in public, in a bunch of people, and I'm going to Go down this water and get back up. And So Jesus asks you to do one thing as an immediate demonstration of obedience, and it seems a little tough. might be good to figure out why. Why is that a sticking point? It's a good place to pray, a good place to, to think about. But it, it does become a demonstration of obedience. Uh, secondly, it's a demonstration of faith. It's a demonstration that one is joined with Christ and with all other believers in a way of acceptance and identification. I won't make you all turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 15, we have that wonderful passage that deals with the resurrection of Christ. And we get there that why we're baptized, one of the additional reasons why. And in the fact, as he's saying, if Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, since he has been raised, we're raised with him, and all the resurrection must happen. But then he asks a very odd question. It's a passage that's caused no end of debate in some circles. In verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 15, he asks this question. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, that's a good question. And some have taken this and actually built strange doctrines on it, the idea that I can be baptized in another person's place. It's not Paul's point at all. He's saying, if there's no such thing as resurrection from the dead, why should I go through a ceremony that symbolizes Christ's resurrection from the dead and my union with him that I'm going to be raised from the dead? Why should I be baptized to be joined together with a bunch of dead people if there's no such thing as resurrection? It doesn't make any sense. He says foolishness. And he's completely right. If there is no resurrection from the dead, it is foolishness. But there is a resurrection. That's his whole point in the passage. And so I demonstrate my faith in those truths through entering into the waters of baptism. I identify with Christ and with all those who are Christ's in it. I identify, I have faith that God's holy judgment upon sin and death was taken on my behalf by somebody else. He died, and I only go through the symbol. And I demonstrate my faith that I've been buried with him. And I demonstrate my faith that the resurrection is what's coming, and that's what I'm looking forward to. So it's a demonstration of faith. And thirdly, did I, I, lost, my, I lost my monitor, so hold on and look up there. I was, I was trying to look down here. It won't work. It's a demonstration that I believe personally. In Acts chapter 8, we have this wonderful account of Philip. Philip was led by the Spirit out into the desert. 
And as he got there, he found an Ethiopian eunuch who served Candace in Ethiopia. And he heard this guy, interesting thing they used to do back in that day, and a lot of the, the Jews still do it today. You never read the scripture silently. You always read it out loud. Even more than that, you sang it out loud. That's how you read. Matter of fact, if you read uh, the works of Augustine, one of the things that he says he's jealous of another believer of is that he can read silently. He said, I don't know how he does that, because he could only read out loud. So if you move your lips when you read, I know they told you in school there was something wrong with that. It's the most normal way to read on the planet. But in this day, they used to sing the scriptures when they read them. And so this is how Philip knows that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading out of Isaiah 53. He can hear him. And he's singing, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him as a a root out of dry ground. And there was no form in him that made us drawn to him. And it goes on to say how he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And then Philip comes alongside and he says, do you have any idea what it is you're reading? And he says, I haven't got the slightest. And he says, the scripture says he started at that point and told him, about Jesus, that Jesus was the fulfillment of of that passage. And then as they're going along, now we don't know the rest of the conversation except by the inference that happens shortly after that, all of a sudden the Ethiopian eunuch turns to him and says, hey, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? They must have had quite a discussion. But notice how quickly Philip got to it. No sooner did he introduce him to Christ than he's apparently introducing him to the concept of baptism and union with Christ in death, burial, and resurrection. And, and Philip turns to him and says, if you believe with all your heart, oh yeah, you can be baptized. And he says, let's go. And they go down into the waters of baptism. Philip's translated out of that place and ends up miles away. The Ethiopian eunuch is just praising God. It's a, it's a, a demonstration. I Believe this. This is my faith. And I'm going to to demonstrate that I believe it as I enter into this incredible act of water baptism. Well, it symbolizes three three things. It demonstrates those three things. These These are not exhaustive. They're just representative. I'm just picking three. It's not that there's only three. But it also declares three things. The first thing that it declares is the once-for-all nature of salvation. Baptism doesn't get repeated. You don't do it every year. You don't do it every 25 years. You don't do it once a quarter. You're baptized and you're baptized once. Why? Because you're saved and you're saved once. You're united to Christ by faith, by the Spirit, and it's a once-for-all proposition. And baptism helps, helps cement that again in our heads I was reading something the other day about a group that shall remain nameless, and their leader had told them uh, that if you fall into grave sin of any kind, you need to be baptized over again. And then the commentator mentioned, if this guy was just baptized for the times he had committed adultery, he'd have been drowned. But the, um, it's a once for all, and you need to trust The once-for-all work of Christ. You don't get saved and saved again every time you fall. You go back to the same cross and remember Christ has already died for me. I've already entered baptism. I don't need to get saved again. Christ has already purchased me. He's already set me free. Hebrews 7, 27. Christ has no need like those high priests, the high priests under the old covenant, to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins, and then for the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. This is one of the reasons why we have difficulty with the doctrine of the Mass, which they say is a new sacrifice of Christ. No, he was sacrificed once. And we take that by faith. We believe that. And baptism declares for us the once for all nature of our salvation. Baptism also reminds us of the baptism of the Spirit, that by one Spirit we've been baptized into one body, that is, into Christ. Especially pointing to Pentecost. 
I've received the Spirit of Christ. And in John's own preaching, before Christ came on the scene, he said, I, I baptize you with water, but the one who's coming, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so it looks to that and says, yes, I am Christ who has brought me into his own realm by the power of the Spirit. And lastly, it declares the mutually committed status of the believer in Christ. It is the simple statement, I am his and he is mine. Baptized into the Spirit. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, for in one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one Spirit. And it declares that. It declares this mutually committed status that we have agreed together. If I can say this in a very gentle way, there are some of you that have been dating Christ, but you've never accepted the engagement ring. It's time to get off the stool and make the commitment because this is part and parcel of what this demonstrates to us. It's a reminder, then, that baptism isn't for God. It's for us. It's a gift that he gives us. We don't do it for him. He gives it to us and says, here, I want you to have all these benefits. I want you to see what this is all about and enter into the fullness of it and have the security of that commitment that I have made to you. I will marry you on the resurrection day. I really will. And it's not just a hope and a prayer. I, those of you who, who watch uh, um, People's Court, uh, which probably the best show on television, and, uh, or listen to Dr. Laura, another great sage. Uh, one of the things when people call into Dr. Laura and a gal says to, to Dr. Laura, well, you know, she's having trouble getting this guy to commit, she goes, well, my fiancé, and she'll always stop and say, oh, fiancé, do you have a ring and a date? And they'll say, well, no. And she says, then you aren't engaged. It's not your fiancé. He hasn't made a commitment. Do you have a ring and a date? Baptism's for us. It's Jesus giving us a ring and a date. He's saying the ring is, you're mine, and the date is Resurrection Day. And it's coming. And so he does that for us and, and just drops it in our lap in the most amazing way. Well, there's three questions that I wanted to get to by way of application, and we'll close it out here. Because no doubt, uh, some of you are swimming in these questions, no pun intended, um, and others are not. But they're important questions for us to answer because the body of Christ is bigger than, than just us, and there are traditions that surround this. And so there's a question that we have to ask, which is, well, what about infants? An awful lot of the Christian church has a tradition of baptizing infants. What do we do with that? What do we say to that? How do we understand how that ought to fit into our paradigm? And we would simply say that there is an unbroken pattern in the New Testament in every single example of baptism that we have. And the unbroken pattern is that a person believed before they were baptized. Now, it's simply the pattern. Do we have a specific teaching on it? No, we don't. But we do have this unbroken pattern in the New Testament, and it's good for us to go back and look at that. So whether it's Matthew 3, when John begins his baptismal ministry, or whether it's Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, or Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 10, six, three examples in, in Acts 16, in every case, baptism is always directly linked to the faith of the individual being baptized. Now, I understand that there are some other traditions about that. I'm going to come back and I'm going to address that a little more fully in just a second. But I would say uh, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon in his, um, in his uh, catechism uh, back in, uh, in England in the 1800s um, had a question about baptism and he said, we only baptize believers because that's all we ever see in the Bible and we have no command to the contrary. So we, we move in that direction. We would say, that's, that's, we think, a safe course. Well, then, what about rebaptism? That's our second question. What about rebaptism? 
So maybe some of you were baptized as infants, or perhaps you were baptized uh, later in life, but in fact, as you look back on it, you were an unbeliever at the time. What do I do with that? What, should I get re-baptized? So just follow the simple pattern here, and I hope this is clarifying for you and, and not onerous on anyone. Because we believe that the Bible teaches believers only baptism, that's what we've seen here, we would say that no matter what the ceremony you had been through, you in fact hadn't really been baptized at all. If the pattern is that one has to believe in order to be baptized, then simply being dunked or sprinkled or poured on doesn't baptize you, it just makes you wet. So we would say, no, you don't need to be rebaptized. It would be our position that you need to be baptized in the first place. However, and let me add this so that we understand where we're all coming from. We bear in mind that many of our true brothers and sisters in Christ hold to the practice of infant baptism. There's a whole stream of, of theology and logic that surrounds how they arrive at that opinion, and they believe that they are fulfilling Christ's commandment to be baptized by the way that they perform it. And for one in Christ whose conscience is content with that baptism, we wouldn't impose believers-only baptism on you. We wouldn't say we're going to demand that. If you're content with that, God love you. I'm going to see Martin Luther in heaven. I'm going to see John Calvin in heaven. I'm going to see a whole bunch of people. I'm going to see James Montgomery Boyce, who I came to love so dearly, in heaven. And they all taught, taught infant baptism. Now, I have, to, I have to step back and say, wiser and greater men than I have gone down that road. And if your conscience is content in this church, we're not going to force the issue. We're not going to demand it of you. We're going to ask you to work back through the information and see where you ought to be in this and leave it there. Why do we say that? Because the true test of fellowship in the church is never in the New Testament whether or not you've been baptized. It's whether or not you have professed saving faith in Jesus Christ alone and are pursuing him in holiness. And if you are, you're our brother. You're our sister. That's going to be the test of fellowship. In terms of digging into this more fully, you might want to consider what we've presented here. If, however, you come to think that you weren't baptized originally, then we'll baptize you. We won't re-baptize you, but we will baptize you. Is that clear? Did that make sense to you? Do you understand where I was coming from? Okay. And then thirdly, what about those who have delayed? Well, that's it. Come and receive the gift. If you've delayed, don't delay any longer. Some of you who have professed faith in Christ for some time, you really need to consider taking the engagement ring of your Savior. It is a sweet, inexplicably wonderful gift to be received with humility and gratitude and joy, and it will be profoundly helpful for you in your walk as we demonstrated out of Romans 6. Take advantage of it. Don't, don't let it go. I, now, when, when I proposed the sky, I gave her an engagement ring. And I said, if you don't like it, you can take it back. And she did. <laughs> now, do you think I really meant, if you don't like it, you can take it back? No. I was trying to show how wonderful I was, and as soon as she took it back, I was not very wonderful. And then we finally found the one. Exactly. Tell him why. Because she said it didn't look like an engagement ring. And she wanted to make sure it really marked her out as somebody who was engaged. I, I spent long hours and days combing through an infinite number of places to find the perfect antique ring that represented her beauty and uniqueness. But it didn't look like an engagement ring, so... We, we have this discussion almost on a weekly basis. We, we, we go back and forth on this. But here's, here's Christ, and he's presenting this, and, and it, it's an interesting way. It is truly a one-size-fits-all. Uh, the only time we've come close to having that problem was when Big Paul and I both got in the baptistry together, and we displaced more water 
in that thing so that when I baptized him, most of you didn't even know this, the water washed over the back of the baptistry, and we baptized the copier in the downstairs <laughs> vestibule because all the water rushed, rushed down back. This is one size fits all. It fits every believer, and it is the perfect symbol of his love and his devotion and his commitment, and it is the perfect representation of my union with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. So if you haven't done it yet and you've been a believer for a while, I cannot encourage you strongly enough to to say, yes, I want to be baptized. I want to follow Christ in this. And there's any number of you young ones here. Um, The time has passed. You're not just on your parents' coattails anymore. Um, You don't have to be old to believe. You can believe at a very young age. For myself, I was eight. Um, And it it was apparent to me um, that I was a sinner and that I needed a Savior and that Christ was that Savior to be trusted. Uh, He did that amazing work back then. And um, if you've been debating whether or not, maybe you've seen siblings do it. You don't want to do it because the siblings did it. And you don't want to do it just because other kids are doing it. But if you're really trusting Christ and you believe him and are resting in him, you've come to grips with your sin and him as your Savior, be baptized. Be baptized. Be a child bride. Be betrothed to the other now. It's a wonderful thing because he will never, ever take it. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you for the way that you accommodate yourself to us through a symbol as extraordinary as this picture that water baptism is. I thank you for all those here who have signified that throughout their lives and and those who are content with with what they were experienced as younger ones. We, We understand that fully. What we're grateful for is that you have given us this. And we want to receive it with hearts full of gratitude and take full advantage of all that's, all that's contained in it. I, I just pray that your people today will be comforted and encouraged through what their baptism is if they've not taken full advantage of what it, it has been. That even today they would begin to walk in a newness of life that would be fresh and use this incredible weapon against the power of indwelling sin to know that they can walk with you in in freshness in in an extraordinary way. Bless your word to our hearts and, and encourage us all as we leave this place rejoicing in the amazing grace and love and intimacy of the way that you have dealt with us through this extraordinary symbol. We give you praise and thanksgiving for it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand, please.
Praise God from